Help us as we look at the scriptures this morning, Lord, to hear just what you're speaking to us. No more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great story in Genesis 25, which we won't look at today, but I just want to share this as an introduction. Genesis 25, there's a story about two brothers. We'll call them Senior and Junior. And uh, Senior senior grew up to a really capable guy, you know, a, a man's man. He was a hunter and a fisherman, probably did all that, that kind of stuff well. And Junior was, if not a sissy, a, a little more towards that end, you know, and Senior came in from the field one day, long day of hunting, in which he was unsuccessful, and he's hungry and famished. And he says to Junior, who's working in the kitchen, probably wearing an apron, says, uh, I'm hungry and I'm tired. And Junior's been cooking and there's a pot of stew. And so Senior asks for a bowl of that there red stuff, that stew. And Junior, who's been a conniver since he was a little guy, says, no problem, on one condition. I'll give you a bowl of stew if you'll give me your birthright. And Senior says, What's good? what good is a birthright if I starve? You can have it. It's yours for a bowl of stew. And just in case we miss the point of the story, the chapter ends by saying, Thus Esau, who is Senior, despised his birthright. In fact, when this same story is brought up in Hebrews 12, the same phrase is used. Esau despised his birthright. He valued a bowl of stew more than the honor and the wealth that went along with being the eldest son. And we're not entirely sure what the birthright included at this point, but we know that by the time the law is given, the birthright meant the eldest son got double the portion of anyone else in the family. And it was a way of honoring the eldest born. It was all a positive. It was honor and it was material wealth. It was both. And faced with the choice between a bowl of stew and his birthright, Esau says, I'll take the stew. He had a priority problem. His values weren't quite what they should have been. And so he valued something that was quick and it was easy and it was right there over his birthright. What he valued just wasn't up to what it should have been. With that as an introduction, we're going to look at the last church that's written in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. They had a value problem too, which we'll see in a minute. Uh, Geographically, you remember we've gone, this is the seventh stop along the bus route. We start on the coast of modern-day Turkey. We went north, then we came inland east, then we've kind of been going southeast since. Laodicea is the last geographical stop on this seven-point stop. It's not far inland from the modern Turkish coast. Uh, not that old a city by, by the standards of the day, only two or three hundred years old. And Jesus addresses this church, starting in Revelation 3 at verse 14, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, the amen or the, the truth. The Greek term here, you know, if you've got a King James Bible, when you read John's Gospel, it says amen, amen, or it says truly, truly, or verily, verily. That's the same Greek term here. Yes, yes. Yes, it is true. Yes, it is so. Jesus is the yes man, so to speak, in God's economy. 
He's the one that makes God's things happen. His promises are fulfilled. And he's the one that when he speaks, he is the essence of what is true or what is yes, what is right. He's the true witness. Everything he speaks is truth. You remember, this is the word martyr, same thing. He is the true martyr. When he speaks, when he gives witness, when he testifies, everything he says is true. So when he tells this church something, they know. This is the way it is. This is absolutely true. And then he's also the beginning of the creation of God. Some cults use phrases like this to say Jesus was a creature, and that is not the thought here. Jesus is the prime mover, if you will, in God's created economy. Genesis 1 says God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says Jesus spoke the worlds into existence. Jesus and God are the same. And this doesn't mean he was created by the Father, but that he is the prime agent in creation. And in the future, we get this thought out of 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus becomes a man and dies, when he rises from the dead, he is like the seed of the whole universe to come. Have you? I think I've mentioned this kid's movie before. Who's the Luck Dragon movie? The never-ending story. In this movie... It's a great movie, Stan. In this movie, this world has shrunk. The nothingness has eaten it down until there's nothing left but a piece the size of a grain of sand. And the little princess says, don't worry, that's enough. Well, Jesus is like the grain of sand from which this entire new universe is going to spring. So as the firstborn of creation, it's not just that he was the prime mover in the creation we are now a part of, But he's like the kernel or the seed from which all of the new heaven and earth will spring. All of the new life that's about to come will come from him. He's the beginning of it all. So he's important. We need to listen to him. Listen at verse 15. He said this to a few other churches. He says it to you and I today, obviously. I know your deeds. I know you guys. I know what's going on. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I would or I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. You're like mouthwash that I'm just going to spit out. This is gross, and it's meant to be. Uh, You know, if, if it's a hot summer day, and you've been out working in the lawn, Al, you've been mowing, you know, and you're sweaty, and you're thirsty, you go inside, you want a cold glass of water. And you drink that water, you need the water, but it's cold, so it's refreshing. You appreciate it. Or if you're out on a bitter winter day, and your fingers are numb, and your nose is red and cold, and you come inside, you could drink anything you want, but you want a hot cup of cocoa or coffee, whatever. You need something to drink, but the fact that it's hot warms you up from the inside out. So if it's cold or it's hot, depending on the season, it has value. You appreciate that. But set that glass of water out on a hot summer day in the sun and then go to take a drink from that when you're hot and thirsty and parched. You know, don't do it. Or if you let your coffee sit out on the counter the way my wife does and you don't drink it and after a while it becomes room temp and I pick it up, you know, that's not the coffee I want. Kathy likes it, I'm not sure why. 
But it's lukewarm. It's not hot. It's not cold. And we drink it. And yes, it's fluid. And yes, it's actually still good for us if you need fluid. But it is not refreshing. It doesn't warm you from the inside out. It's neither hot nor cold. And you don't want it in your mouth. And that's what Jesus says here. You're like a lukewarm glass of water. I pick you up and I taste you and you're sickening. You're like hot coffee that's been sitting on the counter too long. And I pick you up and I take a taste and I just want to spit you out. I want to spit you out. I think the reason for that is this. If you hate me, let's say that's cold. If you hate me, I'm worthy of your attention and I'm the focus of some part of your life. If you love me devotedly, I'm the focus of your attention. I'm worthy of some energy or consideration or whatever from you. But you know, when you're indifferent to someone, you're just telling them you're not worth the time of day. You have zero value. You're not important enough to be angry about. You're not important enough to be cold-hearted to or to reject. You're not important enough to be a consideration in my busy, important world. You're nothing. And to a lukewarm church, that's the thought. Jesus is saying, you're the water. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're tepid. I'm not, in your economy, I'm not worth the time of day. You don't even consider me enough to be my adversary. I'm not worth the time of day. Lukewarm is the worst thing we can be. If you ask, what does that look like? What does it mean that this church was lukewarm? And what might that have to say to you or I? You know, look at verse 17. This is what lukewarm looks like in Laodicea. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. You don't know, though, that you are really, in reality, wretched. You're miserable. You're poor and blind and naked. They're lukewarm because they think they have something of wealth, and they don't. They're like Esau with the bowl of stew. That's their problem. They're saying to themselves, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have everything I need. Lord, what do I need with you? Now this city was a wealthy city. uh, Very much like ours, our nation. They were wealthy merchants. They traded. They had lots of money. You know, in that corner of the world at that time, the Roman Greek world, That was like the United States or Western Europe of today. That's where most of the wealth was. Standards of living were very high. So they take a look at their own life and they say, got a nice house, drive a nice car, make a good income. I'm comfortable. Life is cushy. Lord, what do I need you for? They were looking at the trinkets in their life and they were mistaking them for something that was actually inherently valuable. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what had real value or intrinsic worth. They looked around at the stuff of their life and thought that was it. And because of that, because they tried to fill their heart with the stuff of life, there was no room left for Christ. He wasn't important enough to be a consideration. Now, if you remember, in each of the churches we've already looked at, you remember they each seemed to have pretty close correspondence with some period of church history? 
And we started with the apostolic age with the church at Ephesus. And we've walked our way up the horn and now we're coming back down and we've gone through chronologically right in order. Up through the last age at Philadelphia was the great missionary activity that ran right up through the last century into the 19, we might argue, decades, 20s, 30s or so. So you know where that leaves us, don't you? Uh, We are this church. We are in the age, the church age, of which this church seems to be typical or a representation. Now this isn't true all around the world, certainly. And this isn't even true in every church in the West, but the church nominally speaking, that is the Christian church which names Christ's name, says we are Christians, especially in the West, and I'm talking Europe, even most of Russia, there are parts of the world in which certainly this is not true today, but at least the church in the West is typified by this lukewarm, pathetic group that mistakes soup and stew and trinkets for real wealth. That's the church and that's the time you and I live in today. And you know, if you look around and the church in the West, and I'm thinking we live in the States, we'll just talk about that. You can see very, very impressive church buildings. I've been floored when I've gone into conferences and stuff. You know, places that seat several thousand people. Multi-million dollar extravaganzas. They've got everything. Theaters, gymnasiums, I mean, you name it. It's there. There is the, wor- the wealth the world has is there in abundance. And this isn't true in just one place or another. It's true across the states. And the mistake then becomes to look at that stuff and think that somehow inherently that building or the number of seats or whatever has in itself any wealth. You know, if you want to know what something is worth, we've talked about this in the past, you know, you put the fire to something and see what it's really made of. You know, in 2 Peter, Peter tells us that this world, this earth that we live on, will be burned up and consumed entirely. That nothing physically that's part of this creation will survive. It will not exist in the future. So that if you value intrinsically as something of ultimate worth that's on this earth physically, you're betting on a horse that won't run and a dog that won't hunt. People are the only thing that survive this earth. So if you're going to say something is of ultimate worth, it can only be one of two things. It can be God himself or it can be people. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus sums up the law and the prophets, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Guess what? If you set your heart, your affections, your love on objects that aren't God or people, it's vanity and it's idolatry because you're trying to make a thing fill your heart and it can't. Those things aren't what's really valuable. Only God and people are ultimately, intrinsically valuable. So when we look at the stuff we accumulate, when the church looks at its buildings as a sign of success, you're looking in the wrong direction. Looking in the wrong direction. Jesus said in Luke 12:15, "Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. Why? 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Idolatry is where you make something, sometimes a person too, more important than God himself. Jesus says don't go there. Objects can't contain your heart. Your heart is made for something bigger and better than things and than stuff. I have struggled at times in the past uh, on a particularly gorgeous day like we've been having recently. I just thought it is so pretty out. I've somehow got to squeeze everything out of the day that's, that's available. And then I feel guilty at the end of the day because I couldn't. Or, you know, sometimes I'll sit down at one of my wife's tasty meals. Tasty meals are legendary at our house. <laughs> sit down at one of her tasty meals and I eat too much. And you know why? Because it's so good, I just think, oh, I just want to keep going. I want to keep enjoying it. Or you could say this about any one of a number of things. And I think about this, I think, man, Lord, I just overate again. Why do I do that? Or Lord, you know, I feel miserable at the end of a gorgeous day because somehow I couldn't wring everything out of it. And I'd struggle and say, Lord, what do, what do I do with these things? And you know, it's like a light went on. And now what I try and tell myself, remind myself is, Lord, I'm going to enjoy you in this gorgeous day. And I'm going to enjoy you with the tasty meal Kathy just made. I'm going to enjoy you in the things you've blessed me with today. You know what? That changes my perspective entirely. Then my focus isn't on the thing which can't hold my heart anyway. It's on God and that in relationship with Him, I'm enjoying the things He gives me. And I am amazed, you know, when you see Christianity caricatured by those in the world, it's as uh, God is the killjoy, you know, no fun. Uh, You know, exactly the opposite is true. God is the only person in the universe who really knows how to have true fun with, with nothing held back. And I love, listen to these verses out of 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, God has created everything. He's talking about food here. Foods which God has created to be gratefully shared. I share this good food, and I'm grateful to God who gave it, and that keeps everything in perspective. I get to enjoy the good thing he gave me. And because I'm grateful, it's in perspective. I'm in relationship with him. I'm enjoying what he's given me to enjoy. And life is good. No downside. In verse 4, Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if if it is received with gratitude. Same thing. God gives you these good things. He's not holding back. He wants us to enjoy things. God is the center of all true joy. All true joy comes from Him. So He's not a killjoy. He gives us things. And when we receive them with gratitude, that's enjoying God in and with the things He gives us. That's appropriate. 1 Timothy 6, Paul speaks to those who are rich in this present world. And he says, Don't be conceited about the wealth or the stuff you've accumulated. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Proverbs says, Wealth is like a bird with wings. Flies away. But fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see, when Jesus is chastising them about finding their wealth in things, it's not because he has any problem with things. He doesn't have a problem with wealth or with good food or with with nice things in this earth or with enjoying them. 
He's for it. It's just that when we leave him out of the equation, it becomes idolatry. So the way to enjoy the things is to enjoy God in them. You don't have to get rid of the things. Things are neutral. Morally, they're not good or they're not bad. It's, it's us that makes the use of them good or bad. So to this church, this rich merchant class city, Jesus says you've confused your values. You're looking at beads and trinkets and you think that's wealth. You're like Esau selling your birthright for a bowl of stew. There's a passage in Proverbs 3 that talks about it's, uh, it's meant to incite us to pursue wisdom. And it says wisdom has all this stuff to give. It says don't pursue these other things. Pursue wisdom and you get everything. Because wisdom gives life. It's better than silver and gold. Don't make silver and gold your aim. But if you pursue wisdom, you get silver and gold. You get real wealth. Colossians 2 says, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If this is true generically sorry, of wisdom, Jesus is ultimately wisdom itself. He's life itself. So if you pursue things, you don't get life, you lose it. If you pursue Jesus, you get life and things. But it's, it's everything in their proper order. So they had confused what was ultimately valuable by putting their focus on things, on gifts, instead of the gift giver. He has a remedy in verse 18. <clears throat> he says, I advise you to buy from me Gold refined by fire that you may become rich. White garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. It's interesting. Uh, Jesus is speaking to guys who make a living by buying and selling. So if we, we hear, buy from me gold, well, Lord, what do I pay for this with? That's really not the thought. Listen to this passage out of Isaiah 55 which I think is the thought Jesus is trading on here. In Isaiah 55, in a future day for Israel, God says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what isn't bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. He's not telling them they've got to come up with a payment. He's just saying you're spending yourself, you're spending your time, your money, your energy on things that don't satisfy. He says, I've got a better deal for you. You come to me. You buy without cost, and I'll give you something that's of real value. Real value. He says refined gold. The thought here is not gold at all. You know, you put the, test, the fire test to something, what's it made of, and will it, will it survive? The thought here is get wealth that survives the fire. This isn't gold in the end. I mean, this is eternal wealth in him. 
This is a treasure that will survive the fires of heaven. Real gold, real wealth. Or when he says white garments, this, this city was known in that world at that time for its fine black wool. And Jesus says, buy from me white garments. And again, this isn't physical. This isn't silk or satin or anything like that. The thought here is, you remember in Philadelphia, white were the garments of righteousness Christ would give to those who believed him. And it also became a symbol for the righteousness of the saints as they followed him. And then the last thing, I salve to see. Not only was this place known for its fine black wool, but it was also the center for the production of eye salves. Well, then I have no idea what they did with these things or, or any benefit they have. But the thought wasn't like putting on bifocals like I wear today. It was the thought that, guys, I will give you insight. I will give you vision so that you can actually see things the way they are. You can value things that are actually valuable. You'll see things truly so give up your trinkets and I'll give you something better. In verse 19 he says, Those whom I love I reprove and I discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Uh, zealous is the term that was used for hot earlier. It's zesty, full of life. Uh, you know, this is the only church Jesus addresses that has absolutely no commendation. There's not one element of praise in this letter. It's the exception. He, he says, I know your works. I look into this church and I see nothing that I can praise. That's interesting. Uh, you know what he does, though? In this verse, he still shows love. He tells them, guys, whom I love, I reprove and discipline, and I'm reproving you. This is important for us to get. This is a group that doesn't give their Savior the time of day. They've written him off. And he says, I still love you, and that's why I'm reproving you. I wouldn't bother talking to you if I didn't care about you. So even though there's nothing to commend, Jesus is still coming to this group saying, I still love you, and I'm committed to you, and you need to get right. I'm disciplining you because I love you, because you are in relationship with me. In Proverbs 3, and Hebrews 12 says the same thing, whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. In fact, there's another verse in Proverbs that says, if you don't pursue your children with discipline, you hate them, because what you're doing will actually end up in their destruction. So Jesus says to this group, I love you like a father loves his son. And the father reproves and disciplines and trains because it's in the son's best interest. It means life for his child. Hebrews 12 says the same thing and says it with this thought. He disciplines for our good that we may share his holiness. You remember what, what the father's after is making a bunch of folks just like his son. So that we can be in fellowship with him. He's holy and guess what? That means we have to be holy. So he's at work in our life to make us more like himself so we can be in fellowship with him and enjoy him more and more and more. There's no downside here. In Ephesians 1 and 3, when Paul prays for Christians, just like these Laodiceans and just like you and I, he doesn't pray for health and wealth. Listen to what he prays. Verse 18 in chapter 1. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, opened up, that the light will come in, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what He's called you to, the certainty of what you're headed to. What are the riches, we could say here, the true riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? This goes both ways. Paul says he prays that they would become enlightened to understand what is the value of their hope in Christ for the future and the riches, the true value of Christ's inheritance in us, in the church, God and people. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that they'd be able to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. It's not the trinkets on earth. When Paul, and think of this guy. I mean, this was probably the most joyful person you'd ever meet. But he's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's rejected, he's stoned. I mean, you name it. He's rejected by everyone in two or three instances. But the most joyful person you'd ever meet. And it's because he valued what was truly valuable. He's praying for them what he already understood. The value of knowing Christ. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, debris, garbage, in view of having to come to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's the point he tries to get across to us. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church, to Laodicea and to the church I take it in our day, in our time. Value what's really valuable. Don't lower your gaze to things. You know, when the... uh, New World, the area that's now the United States, was being settled. The legendary story of the purchase of the island of Manhattan says that the Dutch came over and for $24 worth of beads and trinkets, they purchased 22,000 acres of prime land from the Lenape Indians. And I say this just to be fair, Apparently, the legend is not very historical. I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of other issues here. But for our sake, we're going to take the legendary story as it stands. But there's the picture. The Dutch come over, you know, infamous for being shrewd traders. And they give $24 to a group of people who are thrilled with the trinkets and the beads, but they've given up this vast, wealthy land. What looked like it was valuable, it was shiny, And highly prized, these beads were actually highly prized as trade items. But as far as really intrinsic wealth, it didn't have it. It didn't have it. One group prized the land, the other prized the trinkets. And so they sold what was inherently valuable for something that wasn't. And I think for you and I today, and frankly for the church in the West... When we look to the things and the stuff of life instead of to Christ himself for the reality of real, true life and wealth, we're just like the Indians in the legend, or we're just like Esau. We're trading something of real wealth, real value, for beads and trinkets and for bowls of stew. It's kind of a no-brainer. But, you know, if our eyes are constrained by the guidelines or the thoughts of the world, we try and hang on to the stuff and to the things. And we forget who is ultimately of real value, where value really lies. You know, on Palm Sunday, 
I ask myself or I ask you, would you and I be in the crowds that are hailing Jesus as the Messiah, finding in this, frankly, very humble, meek, unassuming person riding on a little donkey, not much to look at from the outside, But would we have claimed him in that day and waved the branches and cried Hosanna as he entered into Jerusalem? Hot. Or do we stand cold and aloof with the Pharisees and say, who is this guy from Galilee? Or worse, do we just keep eating at our meal and, oh, what was that? Oh, nothing. Nothing. You know, the temptation is there that we lose our view of what's inherently valuable. It it comes down to God in the person of Jesus and then it comes down to others. Those are the only two things that survive the trial that will come on the earth. It's God and it's people. And so with Paul, we want to fix our hope on the future we have in Christ and then we want to value on the earth what he values, which is each other. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to point fingers at Esau in Genesis 25, but the truth is most of us many times value uh, bowls of stew more than we do you. We lose sight of you, the great gift giver, uh, by looking too much at the gifts. Or Lord, we value the trinkets instead of someone of ultimate worth and value. Lord, I think of Romans 8, that if you didn't spare your own son, but delivered him over for us all, you'll freely with him give us all things. I'm just struck again that, Lord, when we make you, when we value you above all, we get you the source of all real joy in life, and we get all the stuff too but it's in its proper place then. Lord, today on a gorgeous day, help us to enjoy the day with you. And when we sit down to a meal, help us to enjoy the meal with you. And Lord, when we drive in our cars or when we go to our schools or whatever we're doing, Lord, whatever we're about, help us to enjoy you in the things you give us. Help us to gratefully acknowledge you and the gifts you give, but to set our hearts on nothing short of you. Thanks that in you is real life, Lord. Help us to have eyes that see. Help us to walk in the white robes that you provide. Help us to value you above silver or gold. In Jesus' name, amen.